Well, how's everyone doing tonight? I forgot my glasses, so you are all a little blurry. Um, but <laughs> so, but uh, we're gonna we're gonna dive into tonight's uh, lesson because uh, we have a lot of ground to cover. Um, we're gonna actually get to the Book of Hebrews this time, uh, which is important in a book of study on the Book of Hebrews. Uh, but last week we we started off with covenant, and uh, and the reason we started with covenant. Um, is because really the Bible is a covenant document. We, we don't tend to think of it that way, but the reality is, uh, much like your um, mortgage agreement or um, when you buy a car or you lease a car and you sign an agreement, that's a legal document. That's what the Bible is. The Bible is full of covenants, um, many different covenants that God has made with man. And for you and I as Christians, we are particularly interested in the new covenant. Uh, so there's, there's many different covenants. In fact, uh, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for, for covenant, that was translated covenant, is bereth, which literally means to cut. And, and that was why, I mean, they, they came up with that, used that word, because what people would do is they would cut a covenant. So they would, you know, cut their fingers or cut their wrists or cut maybe some part of their body in order for blood to be shed. Because what they were doing in that process is they were... They were shedding their blood. They were shedding life. Because remember, in the Eastern mindset, blood meant life. For you and I in the Western mindset, we tend to think of blood as death. But for them, blood was life. And so what they were doing is they were entering into a life covenant. That was the strength. That was the power of this covenant. Now, in the Old Testament, this word breath is used nearly 300 times. And that doesn't include all the other covenant words. There are many other covenant words. We, we looked at one last week, which was Pesach which is to, means to covenant cross, to cross over a threshold and enter into covenant. And so there are many words like that. Later on tonight, we'll look at a word called hesed, which is another covenant word, a word that is only used to describe covenant. But this word itself, bereth, was used over 300 times in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, however, the word for covenant is used 33 times from the Gospels as well as the Epistles. 27 of those times it was used just in the Epistles. However, this is what's really interesting to me. In Hebrews chapters 8 to 13, so really that second half of Hebrews that we're studying this, this, uh, this fall, it is used 17 times. That's nearly two-thirds of all the epistles and over half of all the New Testament. The word for covenant appears over and over again in these, these six chapters. That tells me that there's something significant here. That there's something important, something crucial for us to understand about covenant that the writer of Hebrews is wanting to get, get to. In fact, that makes the, the book of Hebrews, and particularly this section of the book of Hebrews, the book on new covenant. So that's why we're taking the time to understand covenant and review it. Because I think in part what we've done is we've forgotten about covenant. There's a great story in 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23. King Josiah is, uh, is king over Israel at the time. And he's looking at the, the wall and the, the temple and thinking, you know, this place could use a little fixing up. A little bit of renovations and, and so forth. We've called Mike Holmes and he said that we're a little suspect in some areas. So we're going to renovate the place and fix it up. And so there, you know, when you renovate, you go in and you start to empty out some rooms so you could do the work. And that's what they did. They went into a room and they emptied it out and then they found a book. And so the guy, the priest said, go take this book to the king. And so he did. He went and he took the book and he went to the king and he began to read the book to the king. 
and the book was the Torah. It was the Bible, the scriptures. And it seems so incredible, but they'd almost they lost it. They, they had no memory, no recollection. It was this long lost book, which, I mean, just blows my mind that they would, could forget something like this. This is Israel. And yet they had. So when King Josiah is listening to the, to the Torah, to the, the Old Covenant, to the Scriptures, he begins to rip his clothes because he looks around and says, Wow, are we ever way off? We have blown it. And, and as a result, he instituted all kinds of reforms and, and they changed. And, and as incredible as it is for, for them to forget the Old Covenant, I think the same is true for you and I. And we kind of got to dust off the, the book and read it again and begin to discover what new covenant is and the power of the new covenant. Amen? So that's what we're going to do. And we're going a little bit quick so far because, again, we have a lot of ground to cover. But we'll make sure we understand that we don't understand this without Jesus. So let's pray and trust Him to make it real to us. Heavenly Father, this, uh, this truth about covenant is so powerful. And as we talked about last week, it truly can be life-changing as we begin to discover what we have in you in covenant and, and how that can strengthen our faith in you. And that's my desire tonight, Father. Not that we would have a, a better understanding of covenant for the sake of covenant, but that we have a better understanding of how we can relate to you and a more assurance of the power that we have in you. And so, Father, I look forward to what you're going to do tonight as we all trust in you to be the teacher. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, keep in mind tonight as we go on, um, the most important things that you're going to hear are not coming from me, but what Father says through me. Keep that in the back of your mind as we go. So let's start in Hebrews chapter 8, and verse 1, where the writer says, Now the main point in what has been said is this, that we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. What he's doing in chapter 8, the first few verses are going to serve as a bit of a transition. It's going to wrap up what the first seven chapters are and then transition into now what he wants to get on to, which is really now the the meat and bones and and the depths of what he's wanting to teach in this book. So he says, now here's the main point. After all that comparison of Jesus to the Old Testament prophets and angels and Moses and Joshua, and in particular towards Aaron and how Jesus is the order of Melchizedek and greater than Aaron, here's the point that I want to get to, that we have a minister in the sanctuary in, in the true tabernacle, tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. So he's starting to now draw their attention to what was on the earth was but a copy and a shadow to what was real, which was up in heaven. That there was something greater in what the old was trying to help us picture or point to what was the real and what was greater. So verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary for this high priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not have been a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. This is saying that if Jesus, when he was on earth, he wouldn't have qualified as a priest. Why not? He's from the wrong tribe. He was of the tribe of Judah, and you need to be a Levite. So again, according to the law, he wouldn't have qualified. He wasn't good enough for the Mosaic law. But again, different priesthood, different covenant. And then verse 5, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So the Mosaic covenant was a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For 
See, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. So this here, again, it's serving as a bit of a transition. And he's introducing this idea of gifts and sacrifices that he's going to talk about in chapters 9 and 10. And so we'll get to that when we get to chapter 9. But what I want to key on tonight then is he goes on, verse 6 says, But now he's obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. So here we have, again, the the idea that he's trying to get across, that Jesus, as the mediator of a better covenant with better promises, better terms. Remember we talked about how some of the rites and rituals of covenant, uh, an important aspect of it, are the curses and the blessings. And it's, it's the terms of the covenant, the promises of the covenant. And so because we have a better priesthood, because we have a better covenant, it also has better terms. And so here's the idea. With a new priesthood, there needs to be a new covenant, one that is better than the old. But that begins to raise the question, what exactly is the old covenant? And I think, you know, we might think, well, I already know that. Let's move on. I don't think we really do. And, and the reason I say I don't really understand the old covenant is just by looking at the lives of many Christians and how we mix law and grace. And the mixing of the law and grace is the evidence that we're mixing the two covenants because the law is the old and the, and the grace is the new. And so we're mixing law and grace, which is evidence that we don't understand the old covenant and the new covenant. So let's take some moments here, take some time, and we're going to take a look at the old covenant, which is also known as the Mosaic covenant. And so here we have Moses, who looked a lot like Charlton Heston, apparently. And let's take a look at the Old Covenant and how it was formed. So in Exodus 19, the children of Israel now have have walked out of Egypt. They've plundered it. Uh, Now in Exodus 19, it says, In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from the Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. So they came to the Mount Sinai and they all just kind of set up camp there. And Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. So in verses four, he, verse 4, he introduces the, or reminds them, remember what I've done. He, he points to the character of himself, that he is a God who loves them, a God who rescued them, a God who saved them. And out of this, he says, now will you enter into covenant with me? So in verse 5, he's extending a hand. He says, this is, I want to enter into covenant with you. Will you enter into covenant with me? Um, this covenant, I, will, I want you to be my possession. And here's why, verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So verse 6, we start to see the reason. And what's the reason that God wants to go into covenant with, with the children of Israel? Is it get them just to live right so they can get saved? No. It's nothing to do about salvation. It's nothing to do about getting into heaven. The point of the Old Covenant was, and in this case here for the children of Israel, was that they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It was so that the the entire world would be able to look to the children of Israel to understand and discover what God is like, who He is, His character. 
and that they would could discover through Israel how they too can have a connection, a relationship with God. And so that's what, that's what this was about, this covenant. It wasn't about right living. It wasn't about rules and regulations to make, you know, show them how to live, but rather how they could be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so Moses came and he called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded them. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So they agree. They've entered into covenant now. And so this is what God wanted. God wanted a covenant with Israel so that they could become a kingdom of priests to the world. That others could gain access to God through their ministry. That was the point. That was the purpose for Israel at this, at this time. So in chapter 24 then, now they're going to have the ceremony or some of the rites and the rituals. And you'll see some of the things that we talked about last week when we talked about the different rituals of covenant. So in first, uh, verse 1 of chapter 24, then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abhui, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. What were the ordinances? Essentially the Ten Commandments. That this is, you know, what I want you to do. And, and we'll explain why that is the case in a few minutes here. So in verse 4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. So remember, we talked about in the, old, in the um, blood covenant rituals and rites, there would be a blood sacrifice. So here they are, the young men have offered sacrifice, young bulls and peace offerings to the Lord. So there's the sacrifice. And Moses took half of the blood and put it into basins. Remember we talked about the basins, especially in the threshold covenant, how they have a basin at the bottom of the door. Well, he takes the blood, puts half of it in the basins, and then the other half of the blood he sprinkles over the altar. So he's, in essence, cleansing it with blood. He's signifying the fact that this is a blood covenant. Verse 7, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the hearing of all the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. This is sort of like, you know, in a wedding, when the minister says, Do you take so-and-so to be your bride or to be your husband? And we say, I do. This is what he's done here. He's given them the vow, and they're saying, I do, in verse 7. So Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which, his Lord has made, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So he takes the blood and now sprinkles it even over them. Again, the sign of blood covenant. Do you see the rituals and the rites and the covenant they've entered into? They're not playing games here, the children of Israel. Make sense? Now, here's what's kind of remarkable to me is after they've entered into this covenant, they swear that this is what they're going to do. They've, they've heard the Ten Commandments, because that's what Exodus 20 would have been. And he told them all the ordinance. He told them all the commands. They understand it. They have a knowledge of it. Moses says, okay, i got to go up the mountain, and I'm going to go and talk to God. And that's where God gave him the, the picture of what the tabernacle looked like that we read about in, in early on in Hebrews. So while he's up there, what were the children of Israel doing? 
breaking every ten of those commandments, basically. I mean, they basically looked at it as a checklist of what to do, right? And it, don't do it. Okay, we'll do this. And don't do that. Okay, that's what we'll do. Because they pretty much broke all ten in within 40 days of, of hearing all this. And I, and I find that remarkable, except, you know, we've all done that. We've experienced this great moment and experience with God, and then immediately go and fail. And as we'll see, there's, there's a big reason for that. Now, here's another aspect of what happened in this covenant-making uh, procedure that they had. In Deuteronomy 27, Moses is giving his final instructions now to the children of Israel for when they enter into the Promised Land. And what he does, he instructs them, when you get into the Promised Land, I want you to go to a place where there's called Mount Gerizim and Mount Tabal. This is actually a picture of what it looks like today. This is the, the city of Nabula, Nabulus. How many people have heard of that city in, in Israel? Nabulus, probably pronouncing it wrong. But uh, there are two mountains, and, and it looks like this today. And what you can see is on Mount Gerizim, there's, you know, there's life. There's trees growing. There's, there's actual life. But over a mountain of Baal, what do you notice? It's barren. And it was the same case thousands of years ago when the children of Israel first showed up. And when they showed up, this is what they were to do. Half the tribes were going to gather on Mount Gerizim. The other half was to gather on Mount Abal. And then what Joshua did is he read out to them the ordinances of the covenant. He read out to them the terms, the curses and the blessings, which is found in, in Deuteronomy chapter 28. So if you got your Bibles with you, you can turn with me and read along. This is one of those really cheery and uplifting chapters. Deuteronomy chapter 28. And this is what Joshua read. In fact, it, the story of this is told, I think it's in Joshua chapter 8, um, where they actually go and do this. And so Joshua gets up, and this is what he would have read. He said, Now it shall be, beginning of verse 1, If you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed you shall be in the city. Blessed you shall be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your beasts, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed you shall be when you go out. The Lord shall cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns and all that you put your hand to. And He will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to Himself as He swore to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in His ways. So all the peoples of the earth will see you, that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they will be afraid of you. The Lord will make you abound in prosperity and the offering, offspring of your body and your offspring of your beasts and the produce of your ground in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you will only be above and you will not be underneath. If you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I charge you today to observe them carefully, and do not turn aside from any of the words which I command you today, to the right or to the left, to go after God to serve them. 
So he gives them 14 verse, verses of, curse, of blessings. Sounds pretty good. In fact, how many people have, have heard people quote that in terms of today? I've heard you know, people use that verse, particularly the verse 13, where the Lord will make you the head, not the tail, and they try to apply that to nations today, be it Canada or America. And you know, really, when you think about it, they're trying to put themselves under the Old Covenant when they're doing that. Because this belongs to the Old Covenant. This is the terms of the Old Covenant. And if you do it all, then you get blessings. And so you know, it would have been an incredible visual um, uh, instruction for the, the children of Israel because they would have seen how lush and how green and fertile Mount Gerizim was. But Joshua wouldn't have stopped there. He would have kept going to verse 15. But it shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God, to, to observe to do some of His commands, all of His commands, and His statutes, which I charge you today, then some of these curses, all of these curses, will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed you shall be when you go out. The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke in all you undertake to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence cling to you until he has consumed you from the land which you are entering to possess. The Lord will smite you with consumption, with fever, with inflammation, with fiery heat, and with the sword, and with blight, and with mildew, and they will pursue you until you perish. The heaven which is over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you iron. The Lord will make the rain in your land powder and dust, and from heaven it shall come down until you are destroyed. And it just keeps going and going and going. In fact, there are 54 verses of curses. 14 verses of blessings, 54 verses of curses. In a way, they probably shouldn't have signed up to the deal. They probably should have looked at this and said, can we renegotiate this? This doesn't, I mean, this doesn't look good. But they thought, well, we can do this. We could absolutely do this. They looked at Mount Gerizim, which represented the blessings, and said, yeah, that's what we want. And although Mount Abal represents the curses, that, that won't happen to us. That, that just won't happen. We can do this. We can make it work. We can do it all. We can, we can do exactly what these Ten Commandments have given to us. And so they thought they could do it. So the Ten Commandments here, we have the Mosaic Covenant, which is also known as the Old Covenant, which is a series of rules and commands where they would be blessed or cursed depending upon their performance. So it was entirely dependent upon how well they can measure up to following basically the Ten Commandments. There are some other commands, but it all really came down to the Big Ten. And their success or failure was wrapped up in how well they could, they could do it. So it was completely and entirely based on a series of rules and commands. They had to obey all the rules all the time. There's no room for error. There's no room for mistakes. It's not, you know, you can do it for a little while. It's do it for all the time. So it's not, well, I've done it for the last five years. Does that count? It's got to keep going and going and going. The rules were listed essentially in the Ten Commandments. And they were chosen, the Ten Commandments were chosen essentially because they reflect the character and the nature of God. 
You see, it wasn't random that God picked those Ten Commandments. He wasn't sitting there going, well, I've got to tell them to do something. Um, well, don't murder people. That's, that's a good one. Uh, what else can we come up with? It wasn't about that. He picked those ten for a specific reason. Because what he was doing was trying to reflect to them his own character, his own nature. See, have you ever looked at the commandments and saw, you know, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not lie. Well, that's, you know, showing to us who God is. Because God's not a murderer. He's not a thief. He's not a liar. He's not an adulterer. It's not who he is. And so what he was doing in giving these Ten Commandments to the the children of Israel was showing to them his character in an effort and a hope that they would then go and do that so that they could be a ministry to all the world so the people could see Israel and they could see what God was like. Does that make sense? All right. Then the other thing is, God knowing that they weren't going to be able to do it, he also instituted a sacrificial system for when they broke some of the transgressions. Now, what was the key word in that phrase? Some. I don't think we recognize this in the Old Testament. We figured, well, they can do whatever sin they wanted and then, you know, just go and give the, you know, sacrifice the lamb afterwards. That wasn't the case. It was very clear you know, in terms of if you sin this way, then this is the sacrifice. If you sin this way, this is the sacrifice. That's what the whole entire book of Leviticus is all about. Great, exciting reading. It's like reading a law book. Because it, that's what it is. It's if you break here, this is what you do. If you break this law, this is what you do. But then there are some sacrifices, or some sins, sorry, where there's no sacrifice allowed. See, so look at Numbers 35, verse 31. Just for example, moreover, you shall not take ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but you shall surely put, for he shall surely be put to death. There's no sacrifice for that. If you commit this sin under the old covenant, then you're done. With adultery, another one. If you commit adultery under the old covenant, then they're going to stone you and the person you committed adultery with. There is no sacrifice for that. That's why when the Pharisees brought the woman who was caught in adultery before Jesus, Jesus couldn't just say, well, here's a lamb. Poof. Sacrifice the lamb and it's all taken care of. He had to say, you're right. So go ahead. Stone her. Because there was no sacrifice for some of these sins. You're starting to see how serious and how... Difficult, really, that this covenant is. There's, there's no leeway. It is not a, um, a, a simple or easy covenant that these people signed up to. They have to do it right. They have to do it right all the time. And if they fail in some, they might be able to you know, get a do-over. But then there's other ones where you're done. We're going to just kill you right here, right now. Isn't that an exciting covenant? Success or failure was solely based on the performance and the ability of the people of Israel. That's, that's really what's so important about this covenant. It's entirely on them. God is, is giving them the rules, and He's standing over here, and they're over there, and they somehow have to do it now. It's up to them. He has given them the task, and now they have to somehow pull it off. 
And success or failure lies completely with them on their performance and their ability. And really, what are they trying to do? What, what have they been tasked with? To live like who? To live like God. Because this is who I am. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a thief. I'm not a liar. I'm not a cheat. So this is what I want you to do. So they've been tasked to live like God and do it all the time and do it perfectly. And it's completely up to them to pull it off. And so what God was giving to them was a choice between life and prosperity or death and adversity. And the outcome, whether it was life and prosperity or death and adversity, completely depended upon them. If they obeyed and loved God, then okay. But if they rebelled and disobeyed, then they had the Mount Ebal of curses. All 54 verses. Not some, but all. Everyone miserable and depressed yet? All right. Let me ask you a question then about about the Old Covenant, about the Mosaic Covenant. When were we under the Old Covenant? When were you and I under the, uh, under the Old Covenant? That would seem to make sense, right? Because now we're under the New Covenant and this is the Old. But let me ask you another question. Who was the covenant given to? It was given to the Jews. So how many, you show your hands, how many Jews do we have here today? Sorry? You said my name spelled Jews. We don't have. I mean, we're not Jews here, and that's fine. But we're all Gentile dogs. That's what we are. And the Old Covenant was not given to you and I. But here's, here's what I think confused me for a long time. is because we read in Hebrews about the writer calling it the Old Covenant, and so we, we just adopted it. We just have applied it to our own lives and said, well, it was our covenant as well. And we were under the Old Covenant, and the reality was we never were. But the reason why the writer of Hebrews has called it the Old Covenant is because who is he writing to? To Jews. So for them, it was the Old Covenant. For them, the Mosaic Covenant was what they were under since birth. But you and I were never under the Mosaic Covenant. Do you you start to see how ridiculous it is now for us to adopt it? It'd be kind of like, you know, uh, Chris, you buying a house and you making a covenant with the builder and you go and you buy the house and then when it's moving day, I show up and say, you know what, I want to live here too. I think I'm going to move in. (laughs) Not happening. I'm not in the covenant. I have no rights. I have not been invited into it, but I'm now trying to, you know, weasel my way into it. And that's what we've done in some ways with the old covenant. God never gave the Old Covenant. God never gave you the Mosaic Covenant to, you, to, to us as Gentiles. He gave it strictly to Israel for the express purpose for them that they could be a ministry to you and I. That you and I would be able to look at Israel and say, well, that's what God was like. I want a relationship with that God. And they could be a priesthood to everyone. Uh, a bridge builder in many ways. But what we've done is we've adopted it as our own. Well, does that mean then the law had no purpose? Well, no. Because in the reality, although we weren't under the Old Covenant, we weren't under the Mosaic Covenant, the Ten Commandments, we were under a law system. 
And so wherever you know, the Bible is talking about being under law, really you, it might be helpful to think of it as a law system. Look what Romans 2 verses 12 onwards say. Paul says, For all have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So when he's talking about the law, he's talking about the Ten Commandments. And so to the Jews who are, who are under the law, they will be judged by the law. But Gentiles who don't have the law, they were never given the Ten Commandments, they're going to be judged too. Well, that doesn't sound fair. Well, let's keep reading. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves. You see, you don't have to you know, struggle to go around and discover how different cultures, different tribes have essentially the Ten Commandments. I mean, think about long before, 400 years before Moses ever showed up with the, ten, the stone tablets. And, and Abraham and his wife Sarah walk into Egypt, and Abraham gets a little nervous because, you know, he realizes that Sarah's pretty and, and Pharaoh likes to have many wives. And he's thinking, you know, Pharaoh, I want her. That's bad news for me. So, honey, just tell everyone you're my sister. And so she does, and Pharaoh says, hey, she's cute. Why don't you come over? And he invited her under, into his house. And then all of a sudden God shows up in a dream and says, hey, by the way, did you know Sarah's married to Abraham? And Pharaoh flips out. Well, why? Because he knew adultery was wrong. This is 400 years before God showed up with the stone tablets. He knew it was wrong then. You go all the way back to uh, Genesis chapter 4, where Cain and Abel, and Cain murders Abel. And then God shows up and says, Cain, where is Abel? And what does Cain do? He hides the fact that he killed him. Why? Because he knew it was wrong. And you see, I think the reason why Gentiles have a law or know the law or do the law is really goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You see, when, when I believe when Adam and Eve, when they ate from that tree of knowledge of good and evil, what they essentially had done is they had burned upon their consciousness what was good and what was evil. They knew it. And so when he says, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, because essentially what was good and evil was the Ten Commandments. And I don't know if it was like the sweetheart candy where on each fruit was a different commandment. So you pull off one apple and it says, do not murder. Another one, don't commit adultery. Another one, keep the Sabbath. I don't know if it was that you know, ridiculous. It might have just been on the leaves. Who knows, right? But, but you know, I, I think that when they ate it, it was burned into their consciousness. Hence the reason you and I know what's right and what's wrong. In a global perspective. Maybe not the, the, the details, but in a global perspective. And so we have that. And so the Gentiles are under this law system, and it goes all the way back to the garden. That's why everybody is under some law system, some form, some kind. And what ends up happening is our, we all have our own really unique law system. Because what happens is our law system is based upon maybe what society has put upon us or what um, our family has put upon us, our friends, maybe even religion. Or maybe it's something that we derived ourselves. Have you ever noticed that people have their own code by which they live by? 
I always find it interesting. A, a friend of mine who used to um, be involved in, in criminal activity, he'd always tell me how there was, there was a, th- a, a code among thieves. And, and, you know, and you never violated that code when, you know, with thieves and criminals. And, you know, you always think, it's kind of funny. You know, here are the people who are breaking the law, but say, wait, I won't break this law. <laughs> I won't break this code. And I won't, you know, cheat on my friend. I won't rat him out or, or whatever. And they had a code. And that was their system that, which they were to live by. And you know what they did, though? They always violated it. So we all have some form of law system. We all have some code, whether it is the Ten Commandments or not. Now, for a lot of people who grew up in the church, guess where we got our law system from? It looks a lot like the Mosaic Law because that's what we've modeled it after. Because we've, we've incorporated, we've let it mix in, and we thought, well, now here's the Ten Commandments. This is what we need to do and we need to live by. I had a pastor one time get up and said, you know, about the Ten Commandments. What's wrong with them? Implying that's what we need to do right now. And that's what we've done. We've let it, let it um, filter into our thinking. So in Romans 2.15 then, Paul says, so in verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternating and accusing or else defending them. And so when they break their code, either they feel guilty about it, or then they're trying to justify it. And that's their conscious attacking them, because that's the code, that's the law system we've, we've created. So we're all under law in some form, in some, uh, some way. For the Jews, they were under the Mosaic Covenant, and that law system. For you and I, we've created our own law system, but we're under law in some way. And that's good. That's good, because the law has a, has a really important purpose. So, to summarize then, so Gentiles were never under the Mosaic Law. That means everyone in this room here, because we're Gentile dogs. We were never under the Mosaic Law. However, we had our own law system that performed the same purpose. And it was comprised of maybe a series of rules and commands that were, it was believed that if, where it was believed that if I followed it, it would lead to prosperity. And if it was transgressed, it would lead to adversity. So it's the same idea. We had our own blessings and curses. We had our own Deuteronomy 28. And if I, you know, if I am nice to people and I treat them kindly and I treat them fairly, then they will like me. But if I don't treat them fairly, then they will reject me and therefore I'll be hurt. And so we had our own blessings and curses of which we were now trying and striving to live up to. And these law systems might be derived from society, family, religion, or they might even be self-determined. And for many of us who grew up in the church, like I said earlier, we've often modeled it after the Mosaic Covenant. Is this making sense to people? All right. So what's the problem then with this law system? And and all law systems are fundamentally flawed. We have to come to see that. They are fundamentally flawed in some way. Be it the Mosaic Covenant or our own personalized law system, they are all fundamentally flawed. Okay? Okay. So in Hebrews 8, he says, now, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need or no occasion to sought after a second. So if the first covenant was, was great and perfect, was faultless, then there wouldn't need to be a new covenant. But there was need for a new covenant, because it was fundamentally flawed. But notice, 
Was the problem with the law? No. Verse 8, for finding fault with them. The problem with law systems is not the law. Now, I, I'll agree. There are some law systems that might be um, thoroughly um, flawed. So that, you know, that honor among thieves, uh, that would be a flawed law system for sure. But even the most perfect law system, which is the Mosaic law system, which he's talking about here, is, fault, is, uh, is fault, faulty. It's flawed. It's fundamentally flawed. Not because of the law, but because you and I. You see, what, what God was asking man to live like was himself. That's what God was asking man. And man simply can't. He was, he was asking man, who is utterly sinful, who is by, na- by nature a child of wrath, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.3, to live like a holy and perfect God. It's simply impossible. It's kind of like asking a dog to live like a whale. You know what blows my mind? Is I found this picture. <laughs> I was thinking about, you know, what's this? God, give me an illustration. Well, it's like a dog living like a whale. So when I just searched dog and whale, and this is what I came up with. <laughs> that frightens me or not but but I, here it is he's got a mad bite yeah but no matter what we do this dog can never live like a whale he just doesn't have what it takes i mean could you imagine this dog out in the middle of the ocean trying to live like a whale right now diving down to go and eat some fish doesn't stand a chance and that's the same way for you and i trying to live like God. Trying to measure up and live like a holy and perfect God. We simply don't stand a chance. It's simply not going to happen. Um, I got this question before. Uh, somebody asked me, um, talking about this, this subject, uh, the person asked me, the author of the law was God. Yes. And God is perfect. Yes. So he asked me, how come God created this faulty system? Well, Here's the thing. This, again, the emphasis is not the system wasn't faulty. It was the participant. It was man that was, that was faulty. Sorry? I think the question was referring to the author of this, this thing that was created. But the author was perfect, and the system was perfect. It was just the participants were faulty. Right. Now I can see the, the answer. I couldn't keep the answer yeah. at the time. Because, it was uh, finding fault with man, because man's the dog who can't live like the whale. You and I, no matter how much we work, no matter how much we try, we're never going to get there. But we also do, like, if somebody asks that, well, if, if, love, if God chose these people to be his people and love them so much, why did, they, why did uh, he create these laws so they could... Why did he set them up to fail? That's a great question. Why would he set them up to fail? And here's why. Think about going back to the garden, going back to, you know, Adam and Eve and, you know, Satan shows up and what does he tempt them with? What's the temptation? Eat of this tree and who will you be like? You'll be like God. You will know good. You will know evil. And you too can live like God. You too can express the character and nature of God and you can do it without him. 
And so God says, okay. That's what you want? Let's do it. And He challenges them. And it it just blows my mind that God, He uses the very thing that man wanted in order to utterly condemn and bring man back to himself. That's what the law is for. You read what Paul says about the, the law and all law systems. It's a, In 2 Corinthians 3, he says it's a ministry of death and condemnation. That's really what the law is meant to do. So he set man up to fail, to condemn man, and to expose death. To expose the utter sinfulness of man. So Romans 7 verses uh, 12 says, Is the law sin? May it never be. The law is holy, righteous, and perfect. But through the, uh, the law, sin was shown to be utterly sinful. So what God does, He says, Okay, you want to be me? You want to live like me? Here it is. Ten commandments. Do your best. Go for it. Let me know how it turns out. And man failed. He failed to do the very thing he wanted to do, which was to be God, to live like God. There are still some who are trying to follow the law. Absolutely. The world, and how do you think they would respond when they when asked, what's the purpose of the law? I don't know. We'd have to ask them, I guess. Um, all I can say is this is what Scripture's saying, right? Uh, because, I mean, that's what Romans seven twelve is saying, that... Um, the, the, the law was there to show the utter sinfulness of sin, to expose man's sinfulness for what it is. It was never meant to be a way to live. Look what Paul wrote in Galatians three ten and 11. For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. Remember, that's what he said in Deuteronomy. That was the, that was the terms of the covenant. Do it right perfectly, and I will give you 14 verses of blessings. You screw up, I will give you 54 verses of curses. Here it is. Curses everyone who doesn't do it all. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man should live by faith. There's no chance you and I have at keeping this law. But it was never meant for that purpose. So, why was it given? It was given in order that we might expose the sinfulness of man. That we might see that man is the problem. So that we were the fault, not the law, not the system, not, you know, we just weren't trying hard enough, we weren't rededicating enough. We were fundamentally flawed. We were a dog trying to be a whale. That man is not holy and not like God as a result of the fall. And, and this is why the law has a great purpose today. It has an incredible, a, a vital purpose today for unbelievers. Think of what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, in verse, um, I think, 8, 9, and 10. He says that the law is not made for a righteous man, but meant for the murderer, the thief, the adulterer, the liar, the cheat. And that's what it's meant for. It's meant today to show the unbeliever that he's not God, that he's not holy, that he's not perfect, that he's not all-powerful. In fact, that he is right now, at that moment, still a child of wrath. And he is in need of a Savior. He's in need of a new life. And so, you know, as, as a ministry that teaches and loves grace, I also love the law. But I want to use it properly. I want to use it lawfully, which is for the unbeliever, but it doesn't belong with the believer, as we'll see as we go on. 
And so then God showed man that man is not God by giving to them the character of God to live up to and only for them to discover that they are total and complete failures at living like and being God. That's the role of the law today. And how many people have discovered you're not God? (laughs) So you know what that means? The law has done its job. It served its purpose. And so in Galatians 3, verses 23 and 24, Paul says, Before, we were all shut up under, under Scripture. We were all shut up under the law. That's how every man was under some law system to expose the, the failures we were, to lead us to Christ for salvation, for righteousness. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under the law. We're no longer under this law system. Instead now, we're under a new covenant. Now remember, it's a new covenant, a different covenant. A better covenant with better promises. Not a a modification of the old covenant. Not a mixture of the old covenant. So how do we get under this new covenant? So Romans 7, in verse 1, and really, you know, the first part of Romans 7 is what we're going to look at, but all of Romans 7 is Paul's... um, uh, detailing on the relationship of the Christian with the law. So in verse 1, he says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, speaking to people who love the law. Because at this point, he's said some pretty inflammatory things about the law, like how the law stirs up sin, how we're not under law but under grace, that we're justified apart from the works of the law. So he's, he's now going to address the law, and he says that the law has jurisdiction, control, authority over a person as long as he lives. Think about a blood covenant. When you enter into a blood covenant, for example, marriage, when you and I, we got married, in our vows we say, till death do us part. As long as we're alive, or the other person's alive, then we're married. But the moment that person dies, then we're free. That's the illustration he uses in verses 2 and 3. Now in verse 4, he's going to apply it. Therefore, my brethren, you also are made to die to the law of the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead. So what happened on the cross, and this is why the cross is so central and so important to our, to our faith and to Christianity and to New Covenant, is that more than that's where Jesus died for you and I, you were made to die. God took you and I as a result of our faith in Him, placed us in Christ, so when Christ died on that cross, we died on that cross. And the moment we died, what happened to the jurisdiction and the authority of the law system that you were under? It was gone. Because the covenant lasts as long as you live. And the moment you die, the covenant has no power, no authority over you. The covenant, govern, the covenant sorry, is finished. And so you were made to die to the law, to the covenant, to the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another. Who's that? To Jesus Christ. To Him who was raised from the dead. And so we were crucified with Christ, we were buried with Christ, and then we rise again, but now as new creations, who are now united and joined to Him. So the very life of Christ now lives where? In us. In us. In order that we might bear fruit for God. And then in verse 6, But now that we've been released from the law, now that we're no longer under the law, and under the old covenant or mosaic system, having died to that which once bound us, we serve in the newness of the Spirit, and not in the oldness of the letter. We still serve, but not 
in the illness of the latter. What is he specifically referring to here? The Ten Commandments. In fact, if we were to keep reading in this passage, he mentions one of them. He says about covet. So he's, the, he's saying specifically, the Ten Commandments don't have a role in the life of the Christian anymore. You see, what we've done is we've said, well, Jesus came to live in us so He can fulfill the Ten Commandments through us. How many people have heard that before? It's not true. He never came to fulfill the Ten Commandments through you and I. If He did, you know what that would mean? We'd have to practice the Sabbath. So from Friday night, Friday evening to Saturday evening, you're off. You're done. So put your phones aside, no texting, no emails, no work, no cooking, no traveling. You're done. Just, you're done. On the Saturday. That's the Sabbath. Not Sunday, Saturday. That's what we'd have to do. Never mind all the other laws about, you know, shellfish and pigs and so forth. Uh, That's what we'd have to follow. But God never came to live the Ten Commandments uh, through us. Let, let's keep going, and, and I think it'll make some more sense. Look, in Hebrews 8, now he's going to explain the new covenant. So, refining thought with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant, not an old one. He's not, you see, what, what many people have done with the, with the new covenant is we have made it into a souped up version of the old. We've mixed the two. See, the old covenant is. Follow the Ten Commandments, do your best. When you fail, offer a sacrifice, try again. Well, now I'm saved, now I'm a Christian. What do I do? Follow the Ten Commandments or other religious rules. When you fail, you have a sacrifice. It's the perfect Lamb, Jesus. Try again. That's not a new and different covenant. That's the same old covenant, just with a different sacrifice. But it's a new covenant, a different covenant. So he says, the days are coming. This is a prophecy from Jeremiah 31. Uh, Days are coming, says the Lord, while I'll effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with the fathers in the day when I took them out out of Egypt. So it's not like the old covenant. Has nothing to do with the old covenant. It's a completely different one because they didn't continue in that covenant and I didn't care for them. They, they rejected the covenant and so I rejected them. They failed the covenant and so they got the curses with it. Instead, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord. Now the house of Israel is what you're talking about, Elizabeth, how now we are the real children of Abraham because we're children of faith. You know, in Galatians 4, he says that, you know, just because you're a Jew doesn't make you a child of Abraham. Children of Abraham are children by faith. That's why it's the father of many nations. It's not the father of one nation where everyone's got to become a Jew. It's the father of many nations. That's why you have all these Gentiles enter in and still remain those Gentiles but they're now children of, of, uh, of Abraham because they're, they're there by faith. So that's the house of Israel. And he says, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. So what he did in the Old Covenant, he says, here it is, here's the laws, 
Have at her. Do your best. Let me know how it goes. But now with the new covenant, he says, I'm going to get rid of the flaw, which was you, crucify you, bury you, raise you up as a new creation, and now I'm going to put within you the power. That's why he says here, there won't be no more teaching to know the Lord, because we will know the Lord, because He'll be in us. We'll have that union with Him. And now we will have the strength and the power to fulfill what He has written on our minds and on our hearts, the laws. So now here's the thing. Is this the Ten Commandments He's written on our hearts? No. Not at all. Look what He wrote. Look what He said in John 13, verse 34. He says, A new commandment I give you, which is this, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples for if you have love, for if you love one another. Now here's the, here's the interesting part. You know, Jesus, when they asked him, what's the greatest law? Jesus said, well, this is the greatest law. Love your Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And these two laws, all the prophets, all the laws are all wrapped up in those two. That's the nature of it, because that's the very nature of God, to love. And so when Jesus here gives, I give you a new commandment, it was, this is, this is utterly what those Ten Commandments were pointing to, but I'm not looking for you to fulfill the Ten Commandments. This is the commandment, to love. Love God with all you got, and love others as I have loved you. To love with my life. So how do we access this? How do we do this? This is what is so incredible about the New Covenant. In John 14, 12, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Now, I've read this verse when I was a kid and thinking, wow, this is incredible. You mean the stuff that he did 2,000 years ago in the Gospels, if I believe in that, I can do that. And not only that, I can do greater things? Almost too big to believe. But that's not what the verse says. He's not saying the things that I did, you'll do also. It's the things that I do. What tense is that? No. Now. Meaning that Jesus is alive today. And He is at work today. And if I put my faith in Him today... Not for salvation. That's not what he's talking about here. But in terms of trusting Jesus to live in and through me, then the works that he is up to today, then I join in. I become a part of that. So I access now the power of this covenant. How? By faith. By depending upon him. By trusting him. Look what he says. He goes on to say, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And if you love me, you will keep my commandments. uh, I'm an engineer. I think like an engineer. I love math. I'm a freak, but so be it. That's just the way I am. And in particular, I love calculus. I really do. I I just think it's so beautiful. It's so incredible. There's just something that is incredible. I just love calculus. Do you love calculus, Kim? No. Okay. There's something I didn't tell you, but I need you to solve a differential equation. 
This is really important because your entire soul depends upon it. So you need to solve this. No pressure, though. You need to solve this differential equation. Otherwise, you're in a world of hurt. There's 54 verses of curses coming your way. Okay? So you can ask me, by the way, you can ask me to do anything and I'll do it. But you need to solve this calculus equation in order to avoid the 54 verses of curses. Okay? What would you do at this point? You can, you can ask anything. You can ask me anything. Ask me anything and I'll do it. Ask me anything and I'll do it. But you need to solve... Yeah. Ask me to solve it. Look what he's doing. Whatever you ask in my name, that's what I'm going to do. So that my Father may be glorified and so the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. And by the way, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. What's he saying? I've just told you to trust me, to believe in me, and I'll do it. And this is what I want you to do. So what should they do? Jesus, love others as you've loved me, and do it through me. Because as the law has already shown me, in and of myself, I can't do it. In fact, he's going to tell them that in just a few verses, right? In John fifteen five, abide in me, because if you don't, you can do nothing. And so we access the power and the life of this new covenant now by trusting and depending upon Him. So in the summary then, this new covenant is a relationship with God where He gives the believer a new heart after removing the old. That's what took place on the cross. He got rid of your old, rotten, wicked, sinful, deceitful, beyond cure heart crucifying it on that cross, but then replace it with a brand new heart. Don't let anyone ever tell you that you have a rotten heart. If you are a Christian, your heart is good. Your heart is pure. Because He took out the old and gave you a new one. All your sins are forgiven. We're going to talk about that more next week when we get to chapter 9. He now places holy desires, desires to love, to love others as He's loved us, within that new heart. And then he joins the believer to himself so that they can become one in order that he might live his life in and through the believer, allowing him to fulfill those desires that he wrote. And they can now access the power of this covenant, his life and his strength, by faith, depending upon Jesus and not themselves. That's the key to this new covenant. So in the old covenant, it was all up to man solely up to man, to somehow live like God, even though he didn't have the resources of God. In the new covenant, God says, I'm going to do it through you. I've gotten rid of the fundamental flaw, which was you, and I've put my life in you, and I will now do what I want to do through you. Does that make sense? Any questions then? Yes. At the very beginning, you said that the purpose is way back. Yes. Uh, the purpose was so that others would know the character of God. That's right. Um, but then you also said that the purpose mm-hmm. of the law was so that yeah. they would tell So there is, there is, a, there is um, an, if I can say, an, uh, a surface purpose and then a deeper purpose or a... Um, a, a primary and a secondary. So to them, they thought, well, we're going to be a kingdom of priests. So away we go. But God's ultimate reason and purpose was to show them their failure and their inability to do it. So we, there's those there's dual purposes there trying to, to accomplish that. And now, for you and I, we've become now 
uh, members of a royal priesthood. So what do we get to do? Well, we get to show the life of Christ to others. And that others get to see and know the character of God as Jesus lives through us. This message was recorded by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know Jesus deeper and disciple Christians to experience life in Him through the message of the cross. For more information about our ministry, upcoming courses and events, or how to contact us, please visit our website at www.crosswaystolife.org.